Friends, this morning I want to talk to you about something that's been on my heart since we concluded the sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Ever since uh, October 16th, 2022, when I preached that last sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, but it was titled, uh, The Labor of Love. And ever since that day, uh, I've been longing to say more about this particular passage because I think it would be immensely helpful for our souls, particularly for the way that you think about sanctification. So please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. First Corinthians 16, 22. Listen now to the word of God. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we hear your word, you would expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Help us examine our ways in light of Scripture so that we might gain a heart of understanding. Direct our hearts to the cross that we might abide in our Savior's great love, that we might long for His coming and abound in love for one another. In His name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you, do you want to please the Lord? Do you want to do His will? Do you want to obey Him? What would you say? Well, I would think you would all say yes, and yes very quickly. But here's a question I don't want you to answer quickly. I want you to think about it for a while. And my question is this, why? Why do you want to please Him? Why do you want to obey him? Why do you want to evangelize people? Why do you want to disciple and counsel members in this body? Why do you want to pursue purity? Why do you want to instruct and discipline your children? Why do you want to gather with the saints? Why do you want to deny yourself and serve others? I'm asking you to examine your heart to see what's driving your desires and actions. When the Apostle Paul gets to the end of his letter to the Corinthians, he tells us what should be the driving force behind all Christian duty. In fact, there are three passages, three pillars, if you will, that hold up the roof under which we must stand this morning in order to appreciate what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Because it's not a random warning, something that he decided to throw in there at the last minute before signing off his letter. No, he's been preparing us to receive this admonition from the very beginning. Three pillars, three passages. The first one is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Here, Paul lets us know of his great desire for the Corinthian church. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As a church, says Paul, 
This is what you should be about. Nothing else. And friends, we should desire this for ourselves, for our congregation. It is this word, this gospel, this message of the cross that ought to shape a congregation. It ought to inform the way that we think about our identity, our worship, and everything else in the Christian life. The second passage, second pillar, is 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul teaches us about the way of love. If the members of a congregation are to serve one another in a way that is God-glorifying, you remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, we are to serve one another in a way that is God-glorifying, then our driving motivation ought to be love. But what is the source of this love? What is the source of this love? Well, it comes from knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. So God's love for us, as demonstrated in the cross of Christ, produces in us by the power of the Spirit a heart that no longer despises him or is indifferent to him, but a heart that loves him. It is this spirit-wrought love for Jesus that enables us to love others. The third passage, the third pillar, essentially sums it up for us. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. So this love compels and enables us to not only overcome sin, but also to abound in the work of the Lord for His glory. So three pillars, three passages that we should stand under in order to appreciate this text. And so with that in mind, let's now look at Paul's warning. And as with any warning in the scriptures, we should look at it as God's grace to us so that we might repent and grow in our love for Jesus. And there are three observations that we can make from this text that can help us examine our hearts. We see in this text, number one, an awful condition. Number two, we see an alarming consequence. And then finally, we see an affectionate call. An awful condition, an alarming consequence, and an affectionate call. But first, let's consider that condition that Paul draws our attention to. If, that's the condition, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now remember, Paul is writing to the members of the church at Corinth. He's writing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's how he addresses them in 1 Corinthians 1-2. In the very next verse, verse 23 of chapter 16, after the warning, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So the anyone refers to anyone in the church. Friends, this warning is for us believers. It's for you. It's for me. This is a warning for people like us who labor together in a congregation. In fact, this entire chapter, chapter 16, tells us about what laboring in love looks like in the life of a congregation. It's all about the things we do. Generous giving, careful planning, building and restoring relationships, looking for opportunities to share the gospel, extending hospitality, pursuing unity, submitting to those who serve. 
And after all of that, Paul says in verse 14, let all of it, all that you do, be done in love. But be warned, be warned, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, what does that warning imply? It tells you that you can do all those things without loving Christ. So no, just because you're engaged in a lot of activity that looks spiritual doesn't mean that you are doing well spiritually. Now I know this might sound unsettling for you. If it does, I'm glad. It means you understand what the text is saying. But you might be thinking, just look at my life. Look at my life, Pastor. Look at all the evangelism I'm doing. Look how busy I am in serving others in the congregation. See how committed I am to the well-being of my home. Don't my actions prove my love for Christ? Friends, while it is true that love is demonstrated in action, it doesn't necessarily mean that all obedient action is always driven by a love for the Lord Jesus. I think the reason we struggle to understand this is because of the way we have sought to defend biblical love against its counterfeits. We have been so careful to say, love is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's not a mere emotion. It's a verb. It's an action. And so to guard against sentimental or romantic ideas of love, we go to certain passages and we say things like this. Romans 5.8. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, love is action. Jesus did something. He gave himself up for us. Or John 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, love is obedience. It's because of this approach, I fear we have ended up reducing love to something narrow, to merely obedient action. But these passages and passages like them are only telling us that genuine love works. It's not merely a feeling. It works. You see, what we often miss in these verses is the fact that love is prior to action. It precedes it. Jesus says, if you love me, if love for him exists in the first place, then you will obey me. Then we will be compelled by our love for him to obey his word. So genuine love for the Lord has to be more than obedience. It certainly produces obedience, but it's much more than that. Now this passage tells us that an action, even a seemingly obedient action, can exist without the presence of love for Christ. And that tells you that it's possible that something else can drive or motivate obedience. And I'm going to argue this morning that it's always love that drives our actions. It's either a love for Christ or a love for self or a love for some other Christ substitute. 
but obedient action can be driven by something other than a love for Jesus. Now friends, this should not be surprising since Paul has already told us this in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 was written to a people who were not acting out of love. And this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can do all of those things minus love. Think about that. Giving away all that I have. That sounds like obedient action, doesn't it? Giving away all that I have. That doesn't just sound like generous giving. That sounds like over-the-top giving. I mean, you would highly esteem someone like that in the church. What about delivering up my body to be burned? That sounds like self-denial, doesn't it? Laying down your life for another. But you can do that without love. And if you do that, you gain nothing. You gain nothing before God on the last day. Beloved, why did you sign up to serve this morning? Why did you come to the gathering? Why did you drop money in the offering? Did you do it out of a love for Jesus? Or did you do it because you love yourself, because you wanted to look good? Did you do it because you love the praise of people? Did you do it because it made you feel good about yourself? Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You know, this lack of love for Jesus that Paul is concerned about would certainly, would certainly include a lack of obedience, but it is much more than that. I want you to see it's much more than that. No, what Paul is concerned about is love as an affection for Jesus. Not a feeling, but an affection. Now, what is an affection? That's an old-fashioned word. What does affection mean? An affection is not an emotion or feeling. It's not an emotion or feeling. I'm using emotions and feelings synonymously. It's not a mere emotion. Certainly, affections can be accompanied by feelings or emotions, but, if, but their emotions are not affections in and of themselves. Jonathan Edwards defined affections as strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking, feeling, and acting. Let me say that again. Affection, feelings. Most often they exist together, but they're not the same. So what is this affection? Edwards defined affections as strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested, this is how you know them, they are manifested in thinking, feeling, and acting. Friends, affections are deep and intense longings that are consistent with what we believe. In other words, it's a default inclination or disposition of our hearts. And it will always result in an action. Feelings, on the other hand, are very superficial. They can fade away. They are often fickle. 
They're not always consistent with what we believe or they're not even consistent sometimes with reality. For example, you can feel unloved even though people are caring for you. Whereas love as an affection is the default orientation of our hearts which then generates our choices and it even dictates what we do with our feelings. For example, you know when parents send their first child off to school, they feel sad. But they're able to set aside that feeling, even overcome it, because they are deeply convinced that it is good for that child to attend school. So an affection is like that. It's a deep-seated inclination of your heart that governs everything else. And that's what love as an affection is. Friends, all of us are lovers. We cannot help but love. The question is, who or what do we love? Who or what do we love? When the Bible speaks of love, this is what it means. It's speaking of love as an affection, the orientation of our hearts, the direction in which our hearts are tilted. It's our heart disposition, our deepest longings, the inclination of our inner being, our loyalties, our devotion. And the question that Jesus has for you this morning is, do you love me? Augustine said that love is like gravity. Love is like gravity. Listen to his analogy. He said, a body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. So fire tends to move upwards, a stone downwards. They are acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured underwater is drawn up to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on top of the oil sinks below the oil. They are acted upon by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. And Augustine used this analogy to say, my weight, my center of gravity, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Friends, that means at any given point, we are always governed by what we are loving. That's the weight. It pulls us in that direction. And I want to show you that Scripture speaks to these matters. Let me give you three passages. Three passages. Number one, you can love the wrong things. The Bible teaches us that you can love the wrong things. Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. Why are all these things happening? Because my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? You can love the wrong things. Number two, you can do the right things without love. You can do the right things without love. Philippians 1, 15 to 17. Philippians 1, 15 to 17. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ 
from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So two groups of people, both of them obediently preaching Christ. Only one group is doing it out of their love for Christ. The other group is doing it because they love themselves. Number three, the Bible teaches us that love can be confused with mere feeling. It can be confused with mere feeling. Hosea 6 verse 4, God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. It's gone. And then God says, two verses later, what I desire is steadfast love. Not these flaky religious feelings that you have, but covenant love, loyal love. And friends, this is what 1 Corinthians 16, 22 is pointing us to, the lack of covenant loyalty. It's implied in this passage, we are to have love for who? The Lord Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our God, our Savior, our new covenant head, our shepherd, our king, our brother. This is the one who died for me, me who caused him. So much pain and grief. This is the one who bore the wrath in my place. This is the one who washed all of my sins. This is the one who made me whole, who adopted me. This is the one who says to us, all that I have is yours. Beloved, how could we not love him? We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our love, our devotion. This is why our love for him ought to exceed every other kind of legitimate human love. Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, our love for the Lord puts every other love in its proper perspective, doesn't it? In the context of this letter to the Corinthians, a lack of love for the Lord was demonstrated by them by embracing cultural wisdom instead of holding fast to the word of Christ. And throughout this letter, Paul seems to be saying, if you love the Lord, you will flee sexual immorality. If you love him, you will not participate in idolatrous feasts. If you love him, you will build up one another. But he also says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. Because there's a way of doing all the right things in a church without love for the Lord. Now, how do we diagnose this problem? How do we diagnose this problem? How can we assess our hearts to know if our actions are proceeding from our love for Jesus or from a love for something else, some other false savior or false god? Let me give you an example. If you're working hard, ladies, this is for you. If you're working hard to extend hospitality to other members in your home, 
to create a haven where gospel conversations take place and you think you're doing it out of a love for Jesus, your friends think that you're doing it out of a love for Jesus and when people leave, no one thanks you. No one compliments on how good your cooking was. Your children and your husband don't rise up and call you blessed. You're really upset. You're ticked off by that. If you're really upset about that, then you didn't really do it out of a love for Jesus, did you? No, your reaction tells you that you did it out of a love for yourself. You wanted to be praised. That's what drove all of that action. Beloved, because the Lord loves you, He will use His people and hard providence and His Holy Spirit to expose your heart. And when He does that, you should heed His warning and repent and turn to Christ. Let me give you another example. Let's say you've been asked to teach a Bible study and you readily agree because you think you love Jesus, you love the church, and you want to serve in any way you can. And after your class, people come and tell you how well you have taught the Bible. Thank you for directing our hearts to the, to the Lord. And then one day you fall into sin. And your pastors minister to you and they tell you, brother, perhaps it would be better if you stepped away from an upfront ministry like teaching for a season. So that you can focus on your repentance and overcoming your sin and growing in the Lord. And they tell you, you can serve in quiet, unassuming ways. It makes you really mad. Because you can't teach in public. It makes no sense to you that your pastors are telling you that you're not doing well spiritually. And you shouldn't be in a position where you will be susceptible to pride, where people will look up to you and assume that you're okay. Brother, what does your reaction tell you? But what was your real motivation to teach? Was it out of a love for Jesus? If it was, shouldn't you then, out of a love for Jesus, deal with your own heart before instructing the hearts of others? Beloved, let's not minimize, let's not minimize that effective aspect of love and reduce it to mere action. That effective aspect, that posture of the heart, that longing, that devotion, that is fundamental and primary. True saving faith works through love. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Every good work that we do is meant to be produced through love. Love is the most essential thing in true faith. All of Christian obedience is called what? The obedience of faith. We trust in the gospel. We trust in the word of Christ. But that faith works through love. It's our love for Jesus that drives this obedience. And this love is spirit wrought. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This happens when we are born again. 
Scripture tells us that by nature, we do not love God. We do not seek after Him. We are His enemies and children of wrath. But God demonstrates His love to us in this way. That He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus, so that those who repent of their lovelessness and trust in Him will be saved and transformed into lovers of God. It is this message of the cross that is proclaimed in 1 Corinthians, that Christ was crucified on the cross in our place, that He died for every sin that flowed out of our loveless hearts, and then He rose again from the dead to give us new hearts, filled with His Spirit of love, so that we can love God wholeheartedly. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, before we became Christians, what we loved to do and what God wanted us to do were two different things. What we loved to do and what God wanted us to do were two different things. But ever since we heard about God's saving love in Christ, ever since we gazed upon the beauty of His love in His Word, those two things have become one. What we love and what He wants us to do are now the same thing. That's what it means to be born again. You know, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, also wrote another hymn called, We Were Once As You Were. We Were Once As You Were. And in that hymn, the last stanza, he writes this. Our pleasure, what we love, and our duty, what God calls us to do, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love Him beyond measure and serve Him with our all. Friends, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. And if, if you have this affection for God, you will have covenant loyalty towards Him. Then you will keep His commandment. Then you will teach it to your children. Then you will love your neighbor. Then you will pass it, the faith on to the next generation. But the people of Israel were not able to love God in this way because they had uncircumcised hearts. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, God, in fulfillment of His promises, has given us new hearts, circumcised hearts, through the Spirit, so that we can love Him wholeheartedly. Friends, if you're not a Christian, then you should know that no one can love God. No one can approach Him apart from trusting in Jesus and His saving love. We cannot love without knowing the God of love. And we cannot know Him without being reconciled to Him. So we would plead with you this morning, be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and you will experience His love. The Apostle John <coughs> tells us that our ability to love says something about our very nature, about who we are. John 4, 1 John 4, 7-8. Beloved, let us love one another, 
for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You know, a few verses later in that same chapter, John tells us that this gospel heart change is necessary for us to love. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. This deep affection for Christ that Paul wants us to have is evidence of being known by God and loved by him. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, what does that tell you? He is known by God, says Paul. If we can grasp that, then we can understand why Paul presents this alarming consequence for those who have no love for Jesus in what they do. And that brings us to our second point, an alarming consequence. If anyone, says Paul, has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The word accursed is the word anathema. Let this one be damned, condemned to hell for all eternity. Beloved, this is the consequence of a lack of love for Christ in what we do. He doesn't say, if anyone does not obey the Lord, let him be cursed. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying obedience is not important or unnecessary to authenticate love for Jesus. But he says, if anyone has no love, he's singling out what is most fundamental. That deep affection, that heart orientation towards Jesus. This is a statement that is as shocking as 1 John 2, 15 to 16. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Remember, he's writing to believers and he's saying to them, saying to us, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. What should that tell you? It should tell you that this is not a condition that you want to remain in. During this sermon, even now, if, as you're listening to me, if you're convicted by the Spirit of lovelessness for Christ in some activity that you regularly do, whether that's serving at church or loving your wife or your husband or your children, any commandment that Christ has called you to obey in faith, if you see that you're doing that, but it's not out of a love for Him, then repent quickly. Repent quickly. Ask the Holy Spirit to expose your false loves, your disordered loves. Look to the gospel. Look to His word. Gaze long and hard and meditate on the riches of His grace, His mercy, His love, and grow in your love for Him. But what I want you to really grasp is why a lack of love is so damning. Why is it so damning? Why anathema? Friends, here's an important principle that Jesus taught us about our hearts that will help you understand why this lovelessness is anti-gospel, anti-Christ, and so damning. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, 
No one can serve two masters, two lords. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. At any given time, you cannot have two covenant loyalties that coexist. Loving one necessarily means despising or hating the other. That's how it works. Now in this context, Jesus is talking about how you cannot serve God and money. You cannot have two loves. James puts it in this way. He says in James 4.4, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, why is this important for you to know? And, and how is this helpful for your sanctification to know how our hearts functions? If no one can serve two lords, then A, when you're sinning, you're not loving Christ. You're hating Him. You're despising Him. And B, when your obedience is not flowing out of a heart for Him, it means it's flowing out of a love for something else. And if you have another covenant loyalty, again, you are hating him. When David sinned against the Lord, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan came and said to this man, David, who is called a man after God's own heart, David loved the Lord. And Nathan said to him in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight. He doesn't say, why have you committed adultery? Why have you done this sinful thing? No, he addresses his heart. Why have you hated? Why have you despised? Why have you shown contempt? Why have you hated God in order to do this evil thing? It begins with this affective component. You cannot serve two lords. And if your life is marked by a form of obedience that does not proceed from a love for the Lord, then a fearful judgment awaits. You know, it's easy to see when you sin how you could be hating the Lord. But we learn from this passage that even if you're pursuing obedience, and it's coming out of a love for something else. You're hating the Lord. Brothers, what motivates you? What drives you? If you're not motivated to read your Bible and meditate on these wonderful words of life, you have to ask yourself, do I love the Lord? If you love the Lord, you will love His Word. You will want to hear His voice. You will want to spend hours knowing Him. You will want to commune with Him and delight with Him. You will always do what you love to do. But if you choose sin instead of reading the Word, you're demonstrating contempt for Christ. You're not loving Him. Don't fool yourself into thinking otherwise. Beloved, you can't give yourself to something you don't love. Why does the psalmist meditate on God's Word? Psalm 119, verse 97. Listen to this. 
Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The action of meditation proceeds from this deep affection, a love for God and his word. This is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen to these verses. Why does the psalmist want to go to God's house? Psalm 42 verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. What keeps him from sinning? Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Why does he obediently proclaim God's word to others? Psalm 119, verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. John 14, 23. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. To whom does God impart the wisdom of his word? 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What's the driving motivation to remain steadfast under trial? James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. How do we know that our love for one another is genuine? How do we know that it's flowing out of a love for the Lord? 1 John 5.2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And obey his commandments. You know Jesus doesn't say. Blessed are those who seek to intellectually apprehend. And understand what righteousness is. No he says in Matthew 5.6. Blessed are those who hunger. And thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. You must have a longing. A love. An appetite for it. Brothers, our, all our obedience must be driven by a love for the Lord. And our love for the Lord is cultivated by dwelling on His love. That's the source of our love for Him. And when the source of our love for Him is His love for us, what effect do you think it will have on us? Why holiness, Christ-likeness. When we love the Lord, we will love the things He loves. We will love the people he loves, namely other believers, members of his body. We will love his word. We will love his ways. We will love his priorities. We will love his people. You know, so often in our lives, we, we experience this gap, this gap between what we know and believe and what we must do in obedience to Christ for his glory, don't we? All of us experience this. We know what we should be doing, but then we end up doing something sinful. Is that gap. For example, you know that watching pornography is sinful. So the problem is not a lack of information. You know it, and yet you still end up giving into that temptation and viewing it. Why does that happen? Because you do what you love. What we love informs our choices. Love is like gravity. It draws you towards the orientation of your heart's affections. And remember what Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. In that moment, you are not loving him, but you are hating him. 
You see, the gap exists because of your lack of love for Jesus. If you're striving for an obedience that does not come out of a love for the Lord Jesus, then not only will you be powerless against temptation, but there will be damning consequences if you continue in this way. Now, in order to close the gap, you need to love the Lord and hate your sin. Now, I've heard from some of you that you do hate your particular sins. But I want to ask you, how do you know that? Is it because you feel guilty afterwards? That's not hating your sin. You just hate feeling guilty. No, friends, the only way to displace your love for sin and not give in to it is to displace it with a greater love. And when you displace it with a greater love for Christ, when you meditate on the greatness of His forgiveness and His mercy and His love, you will grow in your hatred of your sin. You will say, He is my Lord. He has done nothing but good to me. He has loved me with an everlasting love. His death has brought me life. I belong to my Savior. I love Him. How can I do this great wickedness against my Lord? Remember, sin is no longer your Lord. Christ is. Live out of your new identity in Him. Meditate on His love for you and you will grow in your affection, in your love for Him. You know, this is what the Puritan Thomas Chalmers meant when he spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. Your love for Jesus by the Spirit's power will drive out your love for sin. It will change the disposition of your heart. That's true gospel transformation and only that kind of transformation will sustain your obedience of faith. It'll sustain your endurance. But if you continue to approach the work that the Lord has called you to without giving careful attention to your heart, well, let this warning stir you to repentance. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Friends, this is a curse pronounced by the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus in His Word. To be cursed, to be cut off from Him is to be lost forever. Our lack of love has eschatological consequences. To love Christ is to express covenant loyalty to Him, affection and esteem for Him. And to not love Him means no blessing but a curse. If you think that you can please Him and do what is required without the power of the gospel producing a love for Him, then such an approach stands opposed to the cross. It demonstrates contempt for His person and you will be condemned on the last day. And that last day, the second coming of the Lord is only desired. It's only desired by those who love the Lord. Which brings us to our third and final point. You see an affectionate call. Paul, at the end of this warning, says, Our Lord, come. You know, these words are in Aramaic, Marana, which means our master or our Lord, and Ta, which means come, Maranapa. This Jesus, whom we are called to love, is coming again to do two things. He's coming to judge those who do not love him. Hence, this call should stir in us a desire to examine our hearts and our love of Him. We hear something similar in Romans 13, 11 to 12. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Friends, if we claim we're doing all these things for Jesus, then we should remember that he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 5. But he's also coming to do something else. He's also coming to receive to himself those who love him. Those who love him reflect on his death-defying resurrection work and cry out, Maranatha! Beloved, if you love the Lord, let me ask you, do you love, do you long for his coming? To see him face to face, to be in his presence forever. Is that your heart's posture? Do you love the Lord? Do you yearn for his coming? If you do, is your love for his return surpassing, exceeding, and displacing your love for this present evil age? You know, that longing for Jesus' coming will transform your priorities in this present age. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. Paul writes, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What does Paul mean when he says the appointed time has grown very short? He means this, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And so those who love his coming will understand that marriage is not ultimate, Jesus is. Loving Jesus' return will mean that we will live Christ-centered and not spouse-centered lives. It means that those who are married will live their married lives in light of eternal priorities. Loving and longing for Jesus' return will mean that we will not let earthly disappointments stop us from serving him. Because we know when he comes, he will wipe away our tears and set every wrong right. and He will satisfy us with eternal joys. When we long for his return, we will learn to hold earthly joys loosely. When we long for his return, we will not feel at home in this world. Longing for his return, it's that affection, that love that makes us heavenly minded. It is that love for his return and presence that makes us live countercultural and faithful lives in the present. Now, this is what one French writer sought to capture when he said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And they'll be out there before you know it. You know, Paul even speaks of this kind of love towards the end of his life. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, after saying how he has fought the good fight and kept the faith, he says this, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, this crown of righteousness that he's looking forward to is the perfect state of righteousness in the new earth. It's a gift given by the Lord Jesus on the basis of his death and resurrection. And Paul says it will be given to all who have loved his appearing. 
those who will enter into the joy of the Lord are defined by their love for his return. The have loved is in perfect tense, suggesting that this love has always characterized their lives. Brothers, does this love for the Lord's appearing characterize your life? Do you love the Lord Jesus? You know, every disciple engaged in everyday obedience, every member, each one of us ought to habitually ask ourselves this question. Do I love the Lord Jesus? Beloved, be watchful over your hearts. Examine your loves. Don't let your love for the Lord grow cold. Warm your heart by the fire of His Word and let His Spirit turn those flickering embers into roaring flames. He will do this for you. This is why Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Imagine that. The Spirit can do that for you. Now, if you're careful in examining your hearts, if you're careful in examining to see, if, am I doing this out of a love for Jesus? And if you help one another do this, you know, in one sense, nothing will change. Externally and visibly, your obedience will look the same. But in another sense, it will be the difference between heaven and hell, between stagnation and spiritual growth, between living defeated lives and being victorious over sin and temptation, between delightful duty and burdensome ministry. So, beloved, take heart. Turn to Him. Rejoice in His great love. And love Him with all of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would fill us with Your Spirit so that we might love You, that we might love our Savior and free, flee from the follies of sin. May our love for Him inform all our obedience, may it drive all our obedience so that our duty would be a delight. Fix our eyes on the cross, O Lord, on that love so divine, so excellent, that we may glory in your perfect love and abound in our love for one another. Be glorified in your church. In Christ's name we pray.